You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and on today's show, we'll be discussing business journalism in Russia with Max Seddon, a Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times, or FT, and a former reporter with BuzzFeed and the Associated Press. He's reported from Russia, Ukraine, and across Europe and the former Soviet Union, and he recently wrote a story about the newsroom scandal at Vedemusti, which dovetails with a lot of reporting by Medusa, including a joint investigative report released after this interview this week by Medusa, Forbes Russia, The Bell, and Vedemusti itself, about how the oil giant Rosneft has apparently trapped Vedemusti in a ridiculously circuitous ownership matrix, while the nominal owner, Demyan Kudretsev, has managed to earn a bundle of money. As I said, this interview with Max Seddon was recorded before Medusa and all those other outlets released that investigative report, but it was recorded after the Naked Pravda's own interview in early April with Maxim Trudelyubov, Vedemusti's editor-at-large. If you didn't read the new investigative report, it's long, or if you didn't listen to the show with Trudelyubov, it's not as long, or maybe it's longer, depends on how quickly you read. If those two things are true, you might be asking yourself, what is the scandal with Vietnamusti? The short version is that one of Russia's top business newspapers is possibly being sold to new owners, and the paper recently got a new acting editor-in-chief whose obnoxiousness and penchant for censorship have alienated the newsroom to the degree that senior editors are publishing open letters and editorials denouncing this guy, whose name is Andrei Shmarov. But what is Vietnamusti exactly? It first hit newsstands in September 1999. With equal shares, the newspaper's co-founders included the Russian company Independent Media, created by the Dutch journalist and businessman Derek Sauer, the British media company FT Group, which published the Financial Times, and the American company Dow Jones, the Wall Street Journal's publisher. In 2005, or 2005, Derek Sauer and his partners sold Independent Media, including its 33% stake in Vedemusti, to the Finnish publishing house Sonoma. In 2015, Sonoma, or Sanoma, I'm going to go with Sonoma. Sonoma sold, Sonoma sold, <laughs> Sonoma sold a by the seashore. Sonoma sold its third of Vedemusti to a company associated with the family of Dimyan Kudretsev, who worked as CEO of the Commerçant Publishing House from 2006 to 2012. In late 2015, after Russia started enforcing new regulations that limit foreign ownership in Russian media outlets to just 20%, the remaining foreign owners of Vietnamusti sold their shares to Dimyan Kudretsev and his co-investors. Now, the million, multi-million dollar question, did Kudretsev and his partners have enough money independently to buy Vietnamusti? Yes, but that is not what they did. A joint investigation by journalists from Medusa, Forbes Russia, The Bell, and Vietnamusti has discovered that the newspaper was acquired using entirely borrowed funds, meaning that it was essentially pledged. Since 2017, the oil giant Rosneft has controlled this debt. 
Now, this gets enormously complicated, but the gist is this. After acquiring the offshore company that owns Vedamasti's publisher, Kudrevsev resold the offshore to his wife's company for more than twice as much money as he and his partners paid for it in the first place, netting himself more than $15 million in profit while saddling his wife's company with more than $25 million. The loan came from Gazprom Bank, but the debt was later bought by a dummy corporation using a loan from a Rosneft bank. Long story short, Rosneft now controls Vedamasti's publisher through a debt chain wherein no enterprise in this string is capable of repaying its loans. And it is now impossible to sell shares in Vedamasti without repaying the debts accrued by Kudretsev because they're integrated, meaning that Vedamasti's potential buyers, whoever they are, whoever they will be, will have to resolve this issue in order to complete the purchase. Earlier this spring, Kudretsev announced that he and his partners were selling the newspaper to the entrepreneurs Konstantin Zatkov and Alexei Golubovich. Under the influence of Rosneft, which wants as badly to get rid of Kudretsev as Kudretsev wants his debts paid off, Andrei Shmarov was appointed the paper's new acting editor-in-chief. He has been a nightmare from day one, and as a result, Alexei Golubovich has actually walked away from the whole deal. But the sale is apparently still going through with just Zetkov. So that is the hell reporters at Vedemasti have had to face for months now. This is life for business journalists in Russia today. Well, basically, reading between the lines, uh, what what is this fairly safe to assume has has happened here? And if you talk to reporters of Vietnamese, they will say the same thing. This, by the way, folks, is Max Seddon, the Financial Times journalist I mentioned at the top of today's show. So it is um, normal for you know, uh, when when uh, an important media asset is is being sold that you, you know, as as with you know, most major business deals. In Russia, that is going to require some sort of level of, of approval from the right people. Max is talking here about Andrei Shmarov, Vedemasti's new acting editor-in-chief, whose tenure at the newspaper has been, as I've said already, an absolute nightmare. When he introduced himself to the newsroom, for example, he touted his ignorance about Vedemasti's own code of ethics, he professed not to read the newspaper itself, and then he defended Harvey Weinstein and expressed skepticism about the very concept of sexual harassment. After a series of attempts by the new acting editor-in-chief to influence the paper's editorial practices, in favor of Rosneft, by the way, the newsroom nominated its own replacement for Shmarov in an editorial published at Vedemasti itself, where senior staff defended the publication's values and principles. He, he seems to have friends in the right places. He's, uh, he's friends with Mikhail Leontiev, who's the press secretary of uh, Rosneft, the giant oil company. Uh, he's uh, said that publicly. That they're friends, and what what has happened is that his his tenure has been so disastrous and such a drastic departure from everything that Vietnamese was always associated with that no one wants to take responsibility for it. But at the same time, no one wants to admit uh, because this would be a violation of the rules of the game where where his appointment really came from, which is why they're accusing each other of still controlling the newspaper and having a point to this guy. And no one seems to know, including including Shmarov himself, uh, who who signed off. And uh, in, in in that case, I think I think that's a point where you start looking up the chain. Now, the reason this is this was such a shock was because out of out of all Russian media, uh, business or no, 
the most respectable Russian publications over the last few years. Gradually, they were taken over by Kremlin-friendly oligarchs. Some of them dramatically fired editors and had staff put on mass. At others, the changes were more were more gradual. But there was this uh, general imposition of, uh, of censorship over much of the print and online media, which is why Medusa exists, among others. And Vyadomosti was always set apart from that because because they were co-owned by the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. And this was the sort of gold gold star that they had that really defined the brand. So we have you know, the same editorial standards as these very lofty Western publications, and uh, they, they own us, which means that you know, we, we can tell oligarchs who complain to go, to go screw themselves when uh, Tatiana Lusova, who's now, a, who's now your colleague at Medusa, when, when she left Edomacy, where she was the editor, in 2016, a lot of the staff posted on Facebook their their favorite stories about when she'd uh, told various oligarchs to to go to go screw themselves, and they were complaining about articles. And then uh, five years ago, Russia changed law uh, essentially to get at the likes of Yedemisty and Forbes, which was then owned by Axel Springer. They don't have that anymore. So I mean, this is a, this is a danger they that the publication as a whole is in, and this is why it's threatening. The, the deal, because the whole value, if, uh, if you are a prospective buyer, is in this Vietnamese brand that's still residually associated with the FT and the Wall Street Journal. They have the orangey pink uh, salmon colored newsprint that still looks like the FT in most readers' minds. You know, most people you know, in the business world have been reading it since, since uh, very, very early in, in the FT and Wall Street Journal's uh, ownership. And if you start immediately violating that and doing it in this very old school, rough and tumble way, the way that Shmarov has, then it, it basically degrades the value of the Vietnamese name in the eyes of reporters and, uh, as far as I know, a lot of readers, some of whom have already demanded their subscriptions repaid. Is it typical that businesses or business interests would not, would be reluctant to turn to the Kremlin, even if they're technically trying to do the Kremlin's bidding? Because this is this seems like something that has popped up repeatedly, say, after the annexation of Crimea. You know, there were certain expectations of people with lots of assets to kind of take a hit and and make certain investments in Crimea, even if it exposed them to potentially, you know, potentially to sanctions in the West. I can, th- this has happened with the, the sale or the distribution of IP addresses to businesses in Crimea that were suddenly left without, you know, their, what they had previously under the Ukrainian authorities. And I believe it's happened with soccer too, if I'm not mistaken. One, one common misconception that a lot of people have about how Russia works is that because Putin personally and the Kremlin have absolute power and very wide-ranging control of what's going on, uh, that they are the ones deciding who, who is doing what and make, making all these, all these decisions, even at fairly low levels, that have to be agreed with, with Putin. And what, what you actually get is a system when, when you have uh, that much power concentrated at the top with no checks on it, you get a system that's much more like the emperor, about you know, Haile Selassie of Ethiopia by Kapuscinski, which is really an, an allegory for communist rule in Poland, this the system is actually extremely inefficient because you it's it's just not physically possible. You know, even even if you are the much more bureaucratically 
efficient and technologically advanced Chinese Communist Party, it's just very difficult to have that kind of control over every single article that goes in in the newspaper, for for example. And so what happens is is that people, and including at surprisingly very high levels on uh, relatively important things, are often left to interpret signals rather than getting direct orders. So you you mentioned soccer in Crimea. What actually happened there was, uh, if, if you want to understand Russia, all you have to do is read the, the leaked transcript of the meeting of the uh, Russian Soccer League board when they uh, had to vote on whether to accept the Crimean teams into the Russian, from Ukraine and the in, into the Russian Soccer League or not after the annexation. And so the argument for was, yes, we are patriots. Crimea is Russia. They, they must uh, 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 play with us. We will put up through any sanctions. But then the, the flip side is, oh, but wait a minute. You know, I own, you know, this, this, this very big company. It'll be very difficult for all my employees if uh, my company is under sanctions. And what if they, they do something that takes the World Cup away? And that's Putin's personal achievement. We can't do anything about that. And then so at some point during this meeting, <laughs> Someone says, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just call Putin and ask him what he wants us to do? And they all go, oh, no, 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 no. That's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Way too scary. And, uh, and, in, and in the end, if you, look in, if, if you look at Crimea and all the, the big state companies do not operate in Crimea. There's no spare bank in Crimea. There's no VTB bank in Crimea. The banks in Crimea are all under a total U.S. embargo. They can't be part of the international banking system. And this, this is a, you know, a, a, an occasional source of uh, anger somewhere like Crimea where you know, people say, why can't we have spare bank? You know, that's, that's a good bank. Why do we have to have these, these, uh, these weird local sanctioned banks? But Sparebank wouldn't be able to operate the way it does as this big global financial institution if operating in Crimea. So while, you know, of course, you, you would only get brownie points for, for investing there, the Kremlin also understands that the, the strictures that you're under if, if you're a businessman with some, with some sort of, of profile. There was a recent essay that Medusa published by Vedomosti editor-at-large Maxim Trudelyubov, uh, where he says that Vedomosti's newsroom right now kind of finds itself caught between, you know, its problematic owners, which we've been talking about, and also criticism from what he calls the, the ascetics and the cynics, which by that he means the pundits uh, that say the newspaper staff members have either, you know, sold out that they're motivated only by their mortgage, you know, that they've got to pay the bills, or that they're clinging to unrealistic ideals. And, you know, I'm sure that you've encountered both of that in uh, when, when just looking at social media, because there's, and this is by no means restricted to either Vietnamese or Russia. And in Max's essay, he goes into details about the Wall Street Journal and this South China Morning Post uh, with their sort of newsroom ownership controversies. Now, without getting into anything personal, does that sentiment resonate with you at all? I mean, I'm sitting here in Connecticut, you know, working for Medusa, translating podcasting content about Russia. And even here, I get, you know, I feel exhausted by the hostility that I can see directed at journalists in Russia, which is where I'm looking. And even though I appreciate the, the need for kind of a, a never-ending conversation about ethics, but I wonder, that argument or that essay by Max, 
what do you think about it? What you're seeing here is this attempt sometimes to present this dichotomy between censorship, which is when the government uh, stops you from writing something, and self-censorship, which is where you don't even try to do things that might uh, offend powerful people because you might be scared of, of the various consequences for, for that. And self-censorship is obviously a problem if you talk to some reporters at Vietnamese who, who I spoke to for this piece, there's definitely uh, uh, a sense that if you compare Vietnamese now to uh, before, you know, back in the day when it was owned by Cohen, by the FT and the journal, you definitely don't see as many big daring investigations as you used to. And you would probably ascribe that more to self-censorship and censorship. It's something that happened at RBC, which is Vietnamese's biggest competitor a few years ago when, when there was a similar scandal, a lot of the staff quit. And then the new editor said, you know, we, we have to be, be, be wary of the double yellow line and uh, no one, no one knows where that is. And that's, and that's something that I don't think is unique to journalism. That's certainly not unique to Russia. What, what you, I think gets lost in this is that it's, it's not really a either or question because obviously if, if uh, you, you have things like, like been happening, happening at Vietnamese for the last few weeks or where you have very obvious instances of direct censorship, whether or, or not they were done at the behest of the, uh, of the Kremlin, these, these things are obviously worse because it's, it's still possible to put forward uh, to, uh, to put out some sort of decent publication. I think if you, there are lots of, uh, and, and this is one of the advantages of the, of, the, of, of the business world, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the people who buy and read business publications are usually people in business themselves. Uh, this is also why Marxists like reading the, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, you, you will find, because the, Information in the in the news sections, as as uh, both the uh, you know as as the capitalists and the anti-capitalists see it, is relatively free of of, of of ideology and bias. I don't know if there's like a saying among leftists, but it's like if you want to read the the most accurate reporting about the, the the dregs or the downfall of capitalism, you have to turn to the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Like, is, is there something? There's some kind of wisdom like that. Is that? I think I've heard that. You must have too. The former editor of the of EFT, he even gave an interview to one of the Chapo Trap House people last year. The uh, number one kind of dirtbag bro podcast. <laughs> so, and, and it was all about how much he loved the EFT, and uh, I, I can't stand reading the New York Times, uh, but 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 the EFT is you know, so much more unvarnished. But and, and so if you look at Russia and also other various authoritarian countries where there still is something of a of a business press there is at least some sort of interest in, in having a functioning business media that is, that is relatively apolitical. And it's all the more important in a country like Russia, where, and this is also how I got into it, and the country doesn't have real politics for the most part. And it's uh, when public politics is basically a show, it's a pretty dull and depressing show. All the interesting things happen behind the scenes. Uh, and uh, then that means that the real politics often happens elsewhere, and especially in Russia, when 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 the economy is so dominated by the state, uh, you often see the, these battles playing out about how the country is run, not in 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 the Duma, which is this completely pliant uh, organ, but within these these various factions of the of the elite that are reflected in in these in, in what you read in the business pages. 
And uh, if if you don't have that, then then you don't have have, have anything. It's it's why business publications were allowed to survive for a lot longer than the, than than put into strictly political ones were in Russia. And you know even well after 2014, you you would have uh, RBC is a great example. They they did uh, several investigations into uh, Putin's family, and it wasn't until they they'd done quite a few of them that one of the editors was. Was fired. I'm sure you don't welcome it, but it's almost as if in, in a few years, the only business reporting will be Western journalists who are based in Moscow. <laughs> well, not necessarily. One of one of the other things about about the likes of Fiatovisti of and their competitors is, and this is something why it's also a real challenge trying to keep up their standards, is that uh, their best reporters all get poached by the business wires, Reuters and Bloomberg, that pay you know um, exponentially more than you could ever earn working as a Russian journalist, and it's a real challenge for the likes of us because we have much smaller staff. The FT bureau with three reporters, the Reuters and Bloomberg bureaus each have more than twenty, if I'm not mistaken, and so many of their of their best reporters uh, they they hire from from Yadamisti. Uh, I I compete with a lot of them with the various business economic things that I, that I cover. And it's uh, really, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased never managed to beat them to anything because they, they just have such an amazing talent pool to, to draw from. So, I mean, I mean, the question is, I think, I think uh, what we've seen here is that if you look at what's happened to RBC, a lot of the best reporters left and have gone to various other places. Uh, they don't do big investigations about Putin's family anymore. But it's also it's 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 not the worst publication, you know. Obviously, you know this is you know the censorship. There's a reason why you know dozens of the best reporters left, right? Because they didn't want to work under those conditions. But uh, it's it's not you know the complete disaster that that you had with what's happening at Vietnamisty, where what what Andrei Shmarv has done in a few weeks has been. Uh, sufficient that the, the the deal that made him the editor is basically blowing up. Because because this is seen as too much, and you know they would one one thing that a few sources have suggested to me is that now that it's been so bad and it's uh, actually calling the financial health of the newspaper into question. What what might happen is some some sort of excuse will be found to possibly remove him, and then he will be replaced with some sort of more subtle editor who will be someone that, that the Kremlin is is happy to deal with, but is is also someone who. Um, won't won't be doing things as drastic as uh, out, outright bans on reporting on politically sensitive topics or taking down articles that offend important and powerful people. talk to uh if you talk to people who work at Vietnamese what they're really really worried about is that they they don't think that that the Kremlin really recognizes this anymore which is which is how this guy was able to get his job in 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 the first place because you know so so politics has been taboo for the better part of a decade now and most most business in in Russia is controlled by the state if you're not allowed to write things that upset state companies then you can only you're only really left with with small business and uh, the current rate of going and the coronavirus crisis, unless they got a lot more help from the government, there's not going to be a whole lot of small business left when this is all said and done. And so there's going to be nothing 
in in the paper and it's 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 very difficult to operate in that ecosystem when the company the main companies that you're writing about are so hostile to you there are several state companies who who have pulled their advertising from places like Vetomisty and cost some pretty significant revenue streams because they were upset at, at different at different articles so if you, if you if you start to see that advertising trickling back and that may be a sign that they've reached some sort of accommodation. Earlier in this interview, Max said that Russia doesn't have politics in the traditional sense. There are political parties and elections, obviously, but they don't really determine the distribution of power or agenda setting. To get a good sense of these things in Russia, Max says you've got to look at the business reporting by Russian journalists. These are really where the battles are played out of, of how Russia is run between between your your ministries, your 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 big state oil and gas companies, the the oligarchs, the the banks, uh, and that has been by far the the best understanding you can get of how of how power really works because it's the only real tangible thing you can get in Russia today that that really spills to the surface. You can really talk to all these guys, and you will often learn a lot more about Putin and the Kremlin from talking to to business people and oligarchs. Than you would from talking to you know the same old uh, political scientists and say nothing of all these stupid deputies. Is the field very accessible? I mean, will people are people willing to actually speak to journalists? Because I know that that you know one of the difficulties of reporting on these stories is that it's it's just difficult to get access. Like one of the criticisms that was made of the BBC's recent profile of Vindictive, where he you know he's accused of sexual harassment by multiple women, is that he's an easy target. And this is this is this is what Echo Moscow staff have uh, I've seen said on, on on Facebook. The implication being they should have gone after Sechin or somebody else. And as as lame as that argument is, it does sort of make me wonder: Is it possible to do very significant reporting on people like that? Because that's certainly what we're talking about. It's like that would be, or that is the that would be the kind of like most hard hitting journalism that I could imagine in Russia. Is it is it possible to do that kind of thing? Not just in terms of what the you know, the, the censors will allow or self-censorship will allow, but are there actually people who, who will talk on the record about that kind of stuff? There are. I think, I think it, you, you have to compare it by degree. So if you compare the, the business press, the kind of access that we get to the, uh, dare I say, mainstream media, we, we actually get, by, by the standards of Western publications, we get pretty good access. Any other various, you know, uh, you you spend enough time doing it. There are enough, you know, state company CEOs, oligarchs who will, you know, give you their personal phone numbers. You'll meet meet them without the press people. Go to their house and they'll they'll tell you some some gossipy things about about what's going on. That's uh, the vast majority of that is off the record. We we sometimes have um, an issue because because we are we are foreigners at the end of the day. So, you know. Some some people see that as more trustworthy because you know a lot of these companies in our case you know they they have uh, including the big state companies like you know, Rosneft, Sparebank, BTB, Gazprom, they they all are listed on the London Stock Exchange. You know there's there's still some some interest in in talking to us. Uh, at the same time, sometimes they feel more comfortable talking to Russian journalists, and uh, that that is where you know, for the most part the the main audience for their for their businesses is quite a lot, and also with with the Russian media. There, there is uh, uh, the practice in Russian media that something that uh, basically doesn't exist in the, uh, in the English-speaking media that you are allowed to check your quotes after after the fact. You are allowed to approve what uh, 
doesn't and doesn't go out under under your name. This is completely taboo in the West, but this is something that actually most of the rest of Europe is is quite common practice. So if 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 I sound like I'm I'm describing some sort of precarious Russian censorship practice, just just bear in mind that that's also completely common in somewhere like Germany. On the subject of business journalism, to get a better sense of the potential impact of reporting in this field, I asked Max if he could remember any moments when his journalism had a specific real-world impact. He recalled an interview he did with the Ukrainian oligarch Igor Kolomoisky after Zelensky's presidential election, where Kolomoisky advocated defaulting on Ukraine's IMF debt, which led to a partial devaluation of Ukraine's currency. It's a good story, and it's certainly related to business journalism. But then... Max told me another story about Steven Seagal, and that's the one I want you to hear. One, one thing that I, that I did do back when I was at BuzzFeed that I think actually may have had something to do with the fact, though I've, I have no way of knowing for sure, was, was actually uh, about Steven Seagal. We, we did the story about, how, uh, about why uh, Steven Seagal was friends with Putin, and uh, the, the lead news nugget in the story was that Putin had actually asked Obama for Steven Seagal to become an honorary consul of Russia in, in Arizona, where, where he lives. And he was some sort of uh, unofficial envoy between uh, the, the White House and, and the Kremlin. And uh, this never happened. We were writing about it two, two years later. And this, this was back in the day uh, when, when you could still call up uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, and he would just talk to you for a few minutes about stuff and give you some quotes you could use for your story. And uh, he, he said, well, I, I don't know when, when the next meeting between Steven Seagal and Vladimir Putin will be. There are certainly no meetings planned for the near future. And uh, I don't know any intentions by the president to change that. And so then we, when we sent our, our finalist questions to Steven Seagal, we said, you know, the Putin spokesman has said that he's now planning to meet with you in the future, that he's very busy. He may not have time to do this. You know, how does that make you feel? And then before the article even came out, but after we sent these questions, Steven Seagal, for the first time in a while, suddenly appeared in in uh in in moscow and he, he would be seen i would keep people would keep sending me all these social media posts that, that people take selfies with him in the lobby of the ritz right by the kremlin and then he basically he didn't leave the country for about six months and uh it it uh appeared to you know the to a casual observer like like he was lobbying for for some some sort of meeting and eventually i i remember this well it was on my birthday he uh he he did get to meet Putin again, and he and Pamela Anderson toured the new aquarium in Vladivostok with Putin. And then eventually, about a year and a half after our story came out, Putin gave gave him a Russian passport, and he became this sort of uh, he's a special representative of uh, of Russia for for cultural liaison between uh, the United States and Russia or, or something like that. And I remember writing to, to, to Rosie Gray, my, my former colleague who I did the, the original story with, you know, see, you wanted journalism because you wanted to change the world. You want to do stories that have impact. And look what we did. <laughs> Steven Seagal finally got his Russian passport. He's friends with Putin again. <laughs> You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. On today's show, we heard from FT Moscow correspondent Max Seddon about the ins and the outs of business reporting in Russia and the drama at Vyadamosti, one of Russia's best but struggling business newspapers. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. 
It's our first English language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.